Hi, this is the K. Ray Reads to You podcast, and I am K. Ray. We're starting a new book today called The Talking Parcel by Gerald Durrell. It has recently been reprinted with a new title, which is The Battle for Castle Cockatrice. So if you want to buy your own copy, look for that title. But I prefer the old title, The Talking Parcel. Chapter 1 The Talking Parcel. When Simon and Peter landed at Athens to stay with their cousin Penelope, and the doors of the plain were opened, the heat hit them like a warm wave from an oven, and the brilliant sunshine made them screw up their eyes. After the generally soggy and grey weather they were used to in England, it was simply splendid, and the boys stretched and blinked with half-closed eyes, like cats in front of a fire, listening entranced to the crackle and pop of the Greek language being spoken all around them. At first sight, their Uncle Henry, who had come to meet them, was a bit of a shock. He was rather large, like a big brown eagle, with a swooping nose and a mane of white hair and enormous hands, which he waved about incessantly. They wondered how on earth anyone who looked like Uncle Henry could be the father of someone as pretty as Penelope, for she was very slender, with huge green eyes and chestnut-coloured hair. "'Ah,' said Uncle Henry, glaring at them ferociously, "'so you've arrived, eh? Good, good. Glad to see you. Glad to see that you're a little less repulsive than you were when I last saw you, just after you were born. You looked like a couple of baby white mice, all pink and horrible.' "'Daddy,' said Penelope, "'don't be rude.' "'Rude? Rude?' said Uncle Henry. "'I'm not being rude. Just telling them.' "'Is that your luggage over there?' asked Penelope. "'Yes,' said Peter. "'Those two cases, and the boat.' "'Boat?' said Uncle Henry. "'What boat?' "'It's a collapsible dinghy,' Simon explained. "'Dad bought it for us.' "'What a very sensible thing to bring,' said Uncle Henry. "'How very intelligent of you both.' The boys glowed with pleasure, and decided that perhaps Uncle Henry was not so bad after all. When they had collected their luggage, they piled it into the trunk of Uncle Henry's big open car, and then they drove off in the hot sunshine through a landscape that soon became dotted with silvery olive trees and dark green cypress trees, standing like spear blades against the blue sky. Uncle Henry's villa was a large rambling house set in the hills above the blue sea, and its wide verandas were shaded by vines heavy with the biggest bunches of grapes the boys had ever seen. The house had white walls and huge green shutters which, when half-closed, turned the rooms cool, dim, and as green as an aquarium. The boys' room was enormous, with a tiled floor and a French window leading out onto the vine-covered veranda. "'Wow!' said Peter appreciatively. "'I'll be able to pluck a bunch of grapes every morning before breakfast.' "'And there are oranges and tangerines and figs in the garden,' said Penelope, "'and watermelons, apricots, and peaches.' "'She was sitting on one of the beds, watching them unpack. "'I can't really believe we are here yet,' said Simon. "'Neither can I,' said Peter, "'except that it's so hot, so it must be real.' "'Penelope laughed. "'It gets much hotter than this.' "'Swimming, that's the answer,' said Peter.' "'That's what I thought we'd do this afternoon,' said Penelope, "'after lunch. There's a huge beach just below us here, and it's marvellous swimming.' "'And we can launch the dinghy,' said Simon. "'Wonderful,' said Peter. "'We'll go on a voyage of discovery.' So, when they'd finished a delicious lunch, the three children changed into their bathing suits, took the dinghy and its pump, 
and made their way down the stony hillside, which smelt deliciously of thyme and myrtle, to the great white dazzling beach that stretched away in each direction as far as the eye could see. The blue waters were as still as a lake, and as transparent as glass. It was hot work pumping up the dinghy, and the children had to keep stopping to have a cooling dip in the sea before continuing. But at last it was pumped up, and it floated fatly in the shallow water, like a plump blue cloud. They scrambled aboard, taking with them the essentials of travel that Penelope had insisted they bring, a large beach umbrella, and a bag containing some bottles of lemonade. Then, with Simon and Peter rowing, and Penelope steering, they set off down the coast. The sun beat down on them, and from the shore they could hear the faint, zithering cries of the cicadas in the olive trees. After they had progressed a quarter of a mile or so, the boys paused in their rowing and wiped the sweat from their faces. "'It's jolly hot work,' said Peter. "'Yes,' agreed Simon. "'I'm simply roasting.' "'Perhaps we've gone far enough,' said Penelope. "'After all, it is your first day, and it is hot. Why don't we make camp somewhere?' Simon glanced over his shoulder. A few hundred yards away, a long, low sandbank stuck out from the beach, forming a tiny bay. "'How about there?' he suggested. "'Let's anchor there by the sandbank.' They rowed into the bay, anchored the dinghy in the still waters, and climbed out onto the sand. They put up the umbrella, which cast a patch of shade the size of a mushroom, and Penelope opened three bottles of lemonade. They lay there and drank the lemonade thirstily. Then, drugged by the heat, and exhausted by their rowing, the two boys fell asleep, their heads pillowed on their arms. Penelope finished her lemonade and dozed for a while, and then decided to climb to the top of the sand dune. The sand was almost too hot to walk on, but she reached the top of the dune. Ahead the beach stretched to the horizon, it seemed, but in the distance it was so shimmering with heat haze she couldn't really make out anything. She was just about to return to the welcome shade of the umbrella when she noticed the thing in the water. It was floating shoreward, propelled by tiny ripples created by a baby breeze that had sprung up. At first she thought it was a log of wood. Gradually it was washed in onto the shore, just below where Penelope stood, and she could see it was a large brown paper parcel tied with purple cord. She was about to run down the sand dune to investigate, when the parcel spoke. "'What ho!' said the parcel, in a squeaky sort of voice. "'What ho! Land ho! By Jove, and about time, too! All this upsy-downsy stuff is detrimental to my innards!' Penelope stared down at the parcel disbelievingly. It looked like a large, perfectly ordinary parcel, standing about three feet high and measuring some two feet across. It was shaped rather like an old-fashioned beehive. "'Sea-sickness is a scourge,' the parcel went on. "'My great-grandmother suffered so much from it "'that she was frequently seasick while having a bath.' "'Who on earth is it talking to?' thought Penelope. "'It can't be talking to me.' "'Just at that moment another voice came from the parcel, "'a faint, sweet, tinkling voice, like the echo of a sheep-bell. "'Oh, do shut up about your grandmother and seasickness,' it said irritably. "'I'm just as sick as you. "'What I want to know is, what do we do now?' "'We have arrived,' said the squeaky first voice, "'thanks to my brilliant navigation. "'Now we wait to be rescued.' "'The parcel,' Penelope had decided, "'was much too small to contain a human being, 
let alone two human beings, and yet there were undeniably two voices coming from it. The whole thing was very creepy. Penelope thought she would feel happier if she had Peter and Simon to help solve this mystery with her, so, turning, she ran down the dune toward the umbrella where the boys were sleeping. "'Peter! Simon! Wake up! Wake up!' hissed Penelope in a whisper, shaking them. "'Wake up! It's very important!' "'What's the matter?' asked Simon, sitting up and yawning sleepily. "'Tell her to go away,' mumbled Peter. "'Want to sleep. Too hot for playing games.' "'I'm not playing games,' whispered Penelope indignantly. "'You must wake up. I've found something most peculiar on the other side of the sandbank.' "'What have you found?' asked Simon, stretching himself. "'A parcel,' said Penelope. "'A large parcel.' "'Good heavens!' groaned Peter. "'Is that all you've woken us up for?' "'What's so unusual about a parcel?' asked Simon. "'Have you ever found a parcel that talks?' asked Penelope. "'It's not the sort of thing that's happened to me very often.' "'Talks?' spluttered Peter, wide awake now. "'Talks? You must be imagining things. You've got sunstroke.' "'A talking parcel?' said Simon. "'You must be joking.' "'I'm not joking, and I haven't got sunstroke,' said Penelope angrily. "'And what's more, it talks in two voices.' The boys stared at her. "'I say, Penny,' said Simon uneasily, "'are you sure you're not imagining things?' Penelope stamped with vexation. "'Of course I'm not,' she whispered vehemently. "'You're both so stupid. "'It's a parcel with two voices, and it's talking to itself. "'If you don't believe me, come and see.' Rather reluctantly, for they still felt that Penelope might be pulling their legs, the boys followed her up the sand dune. When they reached the top, she put a finger to her lips and said, "'Shh!' Then she got down and crawled the rest of the way. Presently the three were peering over the top of the dune. At the base of the dune lay the parcel. Tiny wavelets were breaking around it, and the boys stared in amazement, for the parcel had now started to sing to itself in two separate voices. "'Moon-carrot pie, moon-carrot pie, it'll liven you up, bring a gleam to your eye. Oh, a cow in a manger, a pig in a sty, they all love their slices of moon-carrot pie. Moon-carrot tart, moon-carrot tart, it'll stir up your blood and give strength to your heart. The donkey, the pony, the horse with its cart, they all love to munch at their moon-carrot tart. Moon-carrot stew, moon-carrot stew, there's nothing quite like it from all points of view. The pigeon and turkey, to name but a few, just cannot get on without moon-carrot stew. "'There you are!' whispered Penelope triumphantly. "'What did I tell you?' "'It's incredible,' said Peter. "'What do you think it is? A couple of dwarfs?' "'They would have to be very small dwarfs to fit in that,' said Penelope. "'Well, we can't tell what it is,' said Simon, practically, "'until we unwrap it.' "'How do you know it will like being unwrapped?' asked Peter thoughtfully. "'It did say something about being rescued,' said Penelope. "'Well, we'll ask it,' said Simon. "'At least it speaks English.' He strode down the sand dune, followed by the others, and approached the parcel, which sang on— "'oblivious of his presence. 
Moon carrot jam, moon carrot jam, it's really so good, it's made me what I am. The man of a hundred, the babe in its pram, they can't get along without moon carrot jam. Simon cleared his throat. Excuse me, he said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but. Moon carrot soup, moon carrot soup, it's the stuff you must drink when you're starting to droop. The duck in the duck pond, the hens in their coop, they're regular gluttons for moon carrot soup. Excuse me, said Simon again, very much more loudly. There was silence as the parcel stopped singing. What was that? asked the tinkly voice at last, in a faint, frightened whisper. A voice, said the squeaky voice. I'm almost certain it was a voice, unless, of course, it was a thunderstorm, or a typhoon, or a tidal wave, or maybe an earthquake, or. Excuse me, said Simon, very loudly this time, but do you want to be unwrapped? There, said the squeaky voice, I told you it was a voice, a voice offering to unwrap us. How kind! Shall we say yes? Oh, yes, said the tinkly voice, we've been in the dark so long. Very well, said the squeaky voice, we will allow you to unwrap us. The children gathered around the parcel. Simon pulled out his penknife and carefully cut the thick purple string that bound it, and then they started to pull off the paper. They found underneath what appeared to be a huge quilted tea cosy, heavily embroidered with gold thread in a pattern of leaves and flowers. Um, do you want us to take off your, er, your, er, tea cosy? asked Simon. "'Tea cosy?' asked the squeaky voice indignantly. "'Tea cosy, you ignorant voice? That's not a tea cosy. It's a covering against night winds and inclement weather, made out of genuine rainbow caterpillar silk, that is.' "'Oh,' said Simon, "'I'm sorry. Well, whatever it is, would you like us to remove it?' "'Of course,' said the squeaky voice. "'Spare no effort to make this rescue a successful one.' At the top of the tea cosy was a sort of plated loop, and taking hold of this, Simon lifted off the whole covering. Underneath was a large domed golden cage, furnished with extremely elegant miniature furniture. Apart from two cedar wood perches and a swing, there was a handsome four poster bed with red velvet curtains, covered with a beautifully sewn patchwork bedspread made out of the tiniest scraps of multicolored silks and damasks. A small Louis Quince dining table and chair, and an elegant glass fronted cabinet full of beautiful hand painted china. Then there was a full length gilt edged mirror with an ivory brush and comb hanging by it, and a very comfortable chaise lounge upholstered in royal blue velvet, and beside it a rosewood harpsichord. Sitting at ease on the chaise lounge was the most extraordinary parrot the children had ever seen. His plumage was purple and gold and green and blue, and pink. "'glittering and gleaming and shifting like an opal. "'He had a great smooth curved beak, "'so black that it looked as if it had been carved from coal, "'and eyes the colour of periwinkles. "'But the most surprising thing about the parrot was his feathering, "'for instead of lying smooth, "'each feather was stuck up and curled round, like the fur of a poodle. "'This gave him the look of a strange coloured tree in spring, "'when its buds are just bursting. "'He was wearing a silk a green silk skull-cap with a long black tassel. Next to the chaise lounge on which the parrot was reclining was a small table, and on it was another cage, but a tiny one, the size of a thimble. 
In it sat a glittering golden spider with a jade-green cross on its back. It was obvious that the tinkly voice belonged to the spider, and that the squeaky voice belonged to the parrot. "'So that's what it is,' said Peter. "'It?' said the parrot, sitting up indignantly. "'It?' "'A parrot,' said Penelope, delighted. "'It was just a parrot, an ordinary talking parrot,' said Simon. "'Why didn't we think of that?' "'Now look here,' said the parrot, so loudly and fiercely that the children stopped talking. "'Now look here,' it went on in a lower voice, having got their attention. "'Let's have a tiny bit less of this a-parrot stuff, shall we?' "'I'm sorry,' said Penelope. "'We didn't mean to offend you.' "'Well, you did,' said the parrot. "'But you are a parrot, aren't you?' asked Peter. "'Now there you go again,' said the parrot angrily. "'All this screechy-weechy stuff about a parrot.' "'I'm not a parrot. I'm the parrot.' "'I'm sorry. I don't think we understand you,' said Penelope, puzzled. "'Anyone, or rather any parrot, can be a parrot,' the parrot explained. "'But I'm the parrot. The initials alone should have told you.' "'Initials? What initials?' asked Simon, bewildered. "'Mine,' said the parrot. "'You really do ask the most ridiculous sort of questions.' "'But what initials?' asked Penelope. "'Work them out for yourself,' said the parrot. "'My names are Percival, Archibald, Reginald, Roderick, Oscar, Theophilus.' "'Why, that spells parrot,' said Penelope, delightedly. "'What lovely initials!' "'Thank you,' said the parrot modestly. "'That is why I am not a parrot. I am the parrot. You may call me Parrot.' "'Thank you,' said Penelope.' "'This here,' he continued, gesturing to the small cage with his wing, "'is Dulcibel, my singing spider.' "'How do you do?' said the children. "'How do you do?' said Dulcibel. "'How do you do?' said Parrot. "'I must say,' said Penelope thoughtfully, "'I can see why you are the Parrot. "'I mean, I don't want to be rude or anything, "'but you talk much better than most Parrots. "'I mean, more intelligently, if you know what I mean.' I mean, you seem to know what you're talking about, which most parrots don't. Of course, said Parrot, and you know why most parrots don't know what they're talking about? Why, said Simon. Because they're taught by humans, said Parrot, a most reprehensible way of learning. Well, how did you learn, asked Peter. I was taught by the dictionary, said Parrot proudly. By a dictionary, said Penelope incredulously. "'How can you be taught by a dictionary?' "'How else?' inquired Parrot. "'The trouble with most, if not all, parrots is, as I say, "'that they're taught by humans. "'That's why they don't know what they're saying, "'because the humans never explain to them what they're teaching them.' "'I never thought of that,' said Peter. "'What sane, healthy, normal, intelligent, self-respecting parrot "'would go around all day saying, "'Pretty Polly, if he knew what it meant?' asked Parrot, "'in a voice shaken with passion. "'What decent, honest, shy, retiring, modest bird "'would go around inviting complete strangers to scratch Paul "'if he knew what it meant?' "'When you put it like that, it almost seems like cruelty,' "'said Penelope thoughtfully. "'Yes,' agreed Simon, "'like the awful things they teach to babies, "'Dada, Mama, Bow Wow, and so on.' "'Exactly,' said Parrot triumphantly. "'Now, what normal baby would go around addressing every member of the ungulates he met as 
Moo-moo, if he knew what it meant.' "'Every member of the what?' asked Peter. "'He means cows,' said Simon, who was cleverer at long words than Peter. "'No, no,' Parrot went on. "'The only way to learn to speak is to be taught by a dictionary, "'and I was, oops, and I was extremely lucky that I was brought up "'by a large, kindly, and comprehensive dictionary. "'In fact, the dictionary.' "'How can you be brought up by a dictionary?' asked Penelope, puzzled. "'Where I come from you can,' said Parrot. "'The dictionary is the most human book in the place, "'next to the great book of spells and Hepzibar's herbal.' "'I'm afraid I don't understand,' said Penelope. "'You are a singularly obtuse, obdurate sort of girl,' said Parrot, "'besides being inconsequential, incomprehensible, and incoherent.' "'I don't think there is any need for you to start being rude again,' said Peter, who hadn't understood half the words, but did not like the sound of them, and felt he ought to defend his cousin. "'Rude?' said Parrot. "'Rude? I'm not being rude. Just merely giving some words an airing, poor little things. Part of my job.' "'Giving words an airing?' asked Simon. "'How can you?' "'He's the keeper of the words,' said Dulcibel suddenly, in her tinkly little voice. "'It's a very important job.' "'When we require interruption from you, we shall ask for it,' said Parrot, eyeing Dulcibel severely. "'I'm sorry,' said Dulcibel, bursting into tears. "'I was only trying to help, only trying to give credit where credit was due, only trying to—' "'Will you shut up?' roared Parrot. "'Oh, very well,' said Dulcibel, retreating to the back of her cage, and starting to powder her nose. "'I shall sulk.' "'Sulk,' said Parrot. "'Typical of a spider.' "'What's all this about giving words an airing?' asked Simon. "'What does keeper of the words mean?' asked Peter. "'Well,' said Parrot, "'it's quite true, but you mustn't let it go any further. "'You see, where we come from, we have three books which govern our lives. "'They're talking books, of course, not like your dull old everyday books. "'One is the great book of spells, another is Hepzibar's herbal, "'and the third is the giant dictionary. "'I was brought up by the dictionary, so therefore I became keeper of the words.' "'And what does that mean?' asked Penelope. "'Ah,' said Parrot, "'it's a very important job, I can tell you. "'Do you know how many words there are in the English language?' "'No,' said Penelope. "'Hundreds,' said Peter. "'More like thousands,' said Simon. "'Quite right,' said Parrot. "'To be exact, two hundred thousand words. "'Now the average person uses the same words day after day, "'day in and day out.' Here his eyes filled with tears, and he pulled out a large spotted handkerchief from under his wing, and blew his beak. So, he went on, his voice shaken with sobs, what do you think happens to all the words that aren't used? What happens to them? asked Penelope, wide-eyed. If they're not looked after and given exercise, they simply fade away and vanish, poor little things, said Parrot. That's my job. Once a year I have to sit down and recite the dictionary to make sure that all the words get the correct amount of exercise, but during the course of the year I try to use as many as possible because, really, one outing a year is not enough for the little fellows. They get so bored, sitting there between the pages. "'Time is getting on,' said Dulcibel suddenly. "'I thought you were sulking,' said Parrot, glaring at her. "'I finished,' said Dulcibel. "'It was a lovely sulk.' "'but time's getting on.' 
"'What do you mean time's getting on?' said Parrot irritably. "'Well, we don't want to just sit here all day while you give us lectures on words,' said the spider. "'It's time we were getting back. Remember, we've a lot to do.' "'We have a lot to do. We have a lot to do. I like that,' said Parrot angrily. "'All you do all day is sit in your cage and sing and sulk, and it's left to me to mastermind everything, to make the major decisions, to give that masterly display of courage and cunning.' "'I don't think it's very cunning to get us both exiled,' interrupted Dulcibel, sniffing. "'Not what I would call cunning, anyway.' "'That's right, that's right. Blame me!' shouted Parrot. "'How was I to know they'd attack in the night, eh? How was I to know that the toads would tie us up in a vulgar brown-paper parcel and throw us in the river, eh? You'd think, the way you go on, I'd encouraged the cockatrices to take over. You—you stupid, superannuated, singing spider! You—' "'I shall sulk!' screamed Dulcibel, starting to sob. "'I shall sulk for an hour. "'Our contract does not allow you to insult me more than once a week, "'and you've done it twice to-day.' "'Oh, all right, all right,' said Parrot, in a harassed tone of voice. "'I'm sorry. Here, stop sulking, and I'll give you a blue-bottle pasty when we get back.' "'Promise?' asked Dulcibel. "'Yes, yes, I promise,' said Parrot irritably. "'You wouldn't like to make it a blue-bottle pasty and a grasshopper souffle?' asked Dulcibel wheedlingly. "'No, I wouldn't,' said Parrot shortly. "'Oh, well,' sighed Dulcibel, and started to powder her nose again, humming softly to herself. "'What's all this about toads?' asked Peter, in astonishment. "'And cockatrices,' said Penelope. "'What are they?' "'What have they taken over?' asked Simon. "'And why are you exiled?' asked Penelope. "'Quiet!' shouted Parrot. "'Quiet, quiet, quiet!' The children sat silent. "'Now,' said Parrot, "'will you, first of all, please undo the door?' Hastily Simon took out his penknife, cut the purple string that tied up the door, and then opened it. "'Thank you,' said Parrot, stepping out and climbing on top of the cage. "'Mind you don't catch a chill out there!' shouted Dulcibel. "'You haven't got your cloak on!' Parrot ignored her. He carefully adjusted his skull-cap, which had got pushed lopsidedly over one eye during his climb, and surveyed the children. "'Now,' he said at last, "'you want to know the answers to all these questions, eh?' "'Yes, please,' said Penelope. "'Can I trust you?' said Parrot. "'Of course you can,' said Simon indignantly. "'Well, then,' said Parrot, "'what I'm about to tell you is a strict secret, understand? Not a word to anyone else.' The children promised faithfully that everything Parrot told them would go no further, and settled down around the cage to listen. And that's the end of chapter one of The Talking Parcel by Gerald Durrell. See you next time.